Hello, I'm Chris Biddle and this is episode 112 of Inside AgriTurf. Co, the US parent company of British lawn tractor maker Countax, have announced that the production of both Countax and Westwood tractors at Great Hazley in Oxfordshire will cease by the end of 2023. The site will be used as a sales and service operation for the home market only. The Arian statement suggests that there is no future for Countax all Westwood garden tractors made in the UK or anywhere else and have confirmed that there are no plans to use the Countax or Westwood brand names in the future. And so it is seemingly the end for manufacture of made in Britain garden tractors, a tradition that stretches back to the late 1960s when Jerry Hazelwood launched the ubiquitous lawn bug, part go-kart, part grass cutter, still a favourite of the lawnmower racing fraternity for its low-slung versatility. But it was only in 2019 that Arians announced that its zero-turn mowers would be manufactured at Great Hazley due to an exceptional growth in demand for zero-turn mowers in the UK and in Europe. But that was before Arians purchased AS Motor in Germany, a deal completed in May 2021. Like Arians, AS Motor is a long-established family company manufacturing rugged grass and landscape maintenance machinery. Arian CEO Dan Arians talks about the company's family of brands. He says Arians Co. strongly believes in the future of its zero-turn mowers, snowblowers, and the products of the AS Motor brand. No mention of lawn tractors, indeed an indication that they will no longer feature in the Arians portfolio. It appears that the stock of zero turns that have been manufactured at Great Hazley have been shipped back to the States and will be re-imported. I imagine that a manufacturing and distribution company situated in the heart of Europe, with excellent transport connections and indeed nearer the snow belt, is a much more attractive proposition to Arians than a relatively small plant in the Oxfordshire countryside, on an island off the European mainland and outside the EU and Eurozone. So history is repeating itself, first with Westwood and now with Countax, and it's all very sad that the UK market, with its special requirements for cut-and-collect ride-on mowers, particularly for our long, wet grass, cannot be met by a homegrown manufacturer after all these years. The market has evolved in recent years alongside a host of ever-changing external factors. In today's tough trading climate, Arian's decision to rationalise its product range and manufacturing resources will have been based on shifting economic and market conditions. And so the end of an era, possibly. Another manufacturer may be tempted to have a facility in the UK, perhaps even to show interest in a newish production unit. But for the moment, Arians are to use it as a sales and service operation, but, but for how long? At Great Hazley, anyway. There are not many entrepreneurs like Harry Hankammer around today, particularly 
in this specialist market. He and Countax were around at the right time to exploit a rapidly changing marketplace and a rundown of lawn and garden manufacturing facilities in the UK. His achievements were phenomenal. But the world moves on, and our thoughts now must be with the extremely talented production team at Great Hazley and the sincere hope that their talents will soon be snapped up. But let me explain why I'm particularly engaged with the Countach story and why I, I feel a special connection. After many years of running a dealership, I decided to change tack and follow a long-held ambition for journalism. And at the back end of 1988, I founded Service Dealer magazine, as it is now. I had some of the best times and experiences during the 30-odd years running the magazine, but in 2015 sold it to Duncan Murray Clark's Adplane Company. Since when, it has gone from strength to strength to be the most prestigious business title in the sector, and it is still very much part of my DNA. Now, when you start a magazine, it's always good to have a meaty story to get your teeth into, and very soon, one fitted the bill ideally. At the time, Harry Hankammer ran an engineering company making attachments exclusively for Westwood Engineering, then owned by Ransoms, who overnight cancelled the manufacturing contract, which virtually wiped out the lion's share of his business at a stroke. He decided that if they wouldn't buy his attachments, he would design and build his own tractor in competition, which he did going into production from scratch in little over three months. And so the Countax brand was born and within a few short years had gained market leadership. He added a manufacturing unit adjoining his existing engineering plant in Oxfordshire fitted out with state-of-the-art production facilities. His products proudly displaying made-in-Britain decals. And when he launched a prototype, at the one-off GMA show at Kempton Park in 1990, that was the year that Saltex had decamped to Peterborough, it provoked immediate interest from the dealer trade, particularly those who were troubled by the goings-on at Westwood's Plymouth factory and the continuing uncertainty over the future of ransoms. Everything went swimmingly through the 90s and into the new millennium as Countax gained an ever-higher profile. A new factory was opened by leading UK politician and cabinet member Michael, now Lord, Hesseltine. And Harry was awarded the Survivor of the Year Award by the BBC radio programme In Business. A further factory extension gained royal patronage with an opening ceremony performed by Princess Anne. And guests included Sterling Moss, the legendary Formula One driver and a close friend of Harry's. And with delicious irony, Harry acquired the Westwood brand name to incorporate into the Great Hazley production schedule. Countax launched a special lawn tractor in association with the Williams Formula One team and entered into a branding agreement with JCB. And the company designed and built a special model to smash the world speed record for a lawnmower on Pendine Sands in Wales. But the financial crash of 2008 and resulting recession hit small companies hard. And in 2010, Harry sold 
a majority shareholding to Arians, a landmark U.S. family-owned grass machinery manufacturer founded in 1933. Harry continued with the company but left after a short while, and today he is a director of the British Racing Drivers Club, based at Silverstone, and is closely involved with the ongoing development of the F1 circuit. Now, a year ago, I recorded a special two-part interview with Harry, during which he recounted many of the remarkable and sometimes hairy episodes in the Countach story. I called it The Birth of a Brand. Here I present some edited extracts of the Countach story, which could now well be called the death of a brand. I first asked Harry how he got started in the lawnmower business. Looking back, it was quite interesting for me because I never knew the direction I would of travel and where I would end up. It wasn't like I had some master plan. But my first major interest in garden machinery was starting to work with the founder of Westwood. And he and I just got on like a house on fire. I was, I was working with him having done an engineering apprenticeship and run a small garden grass cane business. And I worked with him through the winter when he was building up his product. Uh, and we're talking about Jerry Hazelwood. Jerry persuaded me to move to Plymouth. In fact, help him move to Plymouth where he got a contract. So I was part of the Westwood team, if you like, that built that product. And I got in that in the early seventies, funnily enough. We, we had tremendous fun because he, had a, he was building a new factory, he was building a new product. And really, I got to know everything that Westwood ever did because I was part of it. And I ended up being his works director at the silly age of about 24. I, I was always hung up on motorsport and I wanted to get back to Buckinghamshire area where it's close to Silverstone and Brands Hatch and all that stuff. And what was the products that you were working on at Westwood? They had, they had a, a very nice little machine called a lawnbug, which you sat on. It has only 24 inch single blade, be good racing lawnmower. Yes. When I first met Sterling in 76 or 77, we, we did the 24 hour Risborough Green charity lawnmower race with Derek Bell. I actually yep. saw Derek the other day and he, all he wanted to talk about, we was sat in his Porsche 956 and was lawnmower race. Very funny. Cause that's where he had also met Sterling. And I maintained a good relationship with Sterling forever after that. Uh, I decided I wanted to get back and Jerry didn't have a dealer in High Wycombe. And I found some premises and we opened a, a garden machinery show. Very quickly found other products to sell, including Mountfield. So leading up to the, the Countax thing, I'd had a good experience of manufacturing with Westwood. Then. A very good relationship with all the staff, obviously. I then started this retail business and became their largest garden tractor seller in the UK. I say that tongue in cheek because Robin Nettle down at Winchester Garden Machinery, bless him, had five dealerships and he used to always tell me he sold 20 more than me, but we only had one and we used to retail about 300 machines a year, which is phenomenal for a garden tractor dealership. When I was retailing, I could never get my hands on the accessories. So the things that went behind the garden tractor are really quite useful, like grass collectors and rollers. Couldn't get them for love of the money. There was a little plant which Mountfield occupied at the time, the lawnmower manufacturer, and they'd been using it for engines. They decided they wanted to get out of it. So we took it over. It was a building that backed onto the forestry commission and it was rented. 
And we started making accessories and realized that all of a sudden there was this enormous market for accessories if you had them in stock. So we started selling almost twice as many accessories as we did garden tractors. So if you like two for one, so if you were building 10,000 tractors a year, we were making 20,000 accessories. I built them purely for Westwood. So they were my sole customer. And then we also made a walk behind lawnmower and we began to become a proper manufacturer of garden machinery in our own right, but not really a brand. We designed a diesel walk behind with a variable speed transmission in it. So it was quite technical with an out front deck. And that was really the basis of how the garden tractor engineering took place because it was a big deck. You need a lot of power. You needed to a good transmission and a good engine and all the rest of it. So we had the engineering under our belt. And then Ransom Sport Westwood and everything changed. And when that happened uh, very quickly, we discovered they weren't that bothered about accessories. And Westwood had a lot of stock uh, because the business model was simply we produced it, they stocked it. And once it's in stock, you start to sell it because as a dealer, you can sell it and get it. The moment you can't get it, you don't bother because it's just hassle. People keep phoning you up. Where's that trailer I ordered? So we, having doubled the business and then they then decided that they wanted to reduce their stock levels. I really saw the writing on the wall, thought we'll be back where we started. If it's not available, people aren't going to try and sell it. They, they almost took it away overnight because it's got too much stock. And we don't really want to order any more for the next month or the month after, which is, wouldn't have killed us dead, but it would have been painful and would have, we'd have had to have lost people and skills. Of course, by then it wasn't, the the Westwood product hadn't been particularly developed and there were a lot of opportunities in the product. Things like the blade engagement could have electric clutch and power takeoff could be separate. And the steering was always a bit clunky and not, we could put, we could, we saw opportunities and I hadn't really discussed with any of my development team and my staff, but I suddenly thought, actually, if we did a walkthrough design, which I don't know if anybody else had done that, you used to have to climb on a garden tractor instead of walk onto it. I started sending sketches, making a few calls. And I said, look, I'm going to be away. We're on holiday for another 10 days or something. I'm going to be away. When I get back, can you try and get me a mock-up of this chassis, with this on it and that? We only had a very short window because that was July and the window was the next annual show. That was, that was our timeline. And I'd said to the guys, this is going to be a mad rush, but we need two or three different engine size models at that show. So we better make a start because I don't want to lose the next 10 days and I'll find you the bits from around the world to fit on them. You just used to the metal work and we know we've got a cutter deck already, a good cutter deck from the out front rider we make. It's things like steering and power takeoffs and stuff. So anyway, I got back up Polony and I was absolutely delighted to see that they'd got a mock-up of a chassis on the floor built with a console on it and a steering wheel set on it. Uh, and the big issue was bonnet. You don't get a bonnet easily. Back in the day when Westwood made one, it, it was a bit of a shocker. It was mm. a bit of a bent steel cover with a mold, molding at the front as a grill. I decided we had to do a bit better than that. I made no secret of the fact that the, that the prototype would be a prototype and it wouldn't look that way when it went into production. So we did an interesting thing. We put a different engine on it than we really intended just to try and attract some good engine suppliers. So we stuck a, a Kohler engine on it, which I never really intended to use because it was quite expensive. 
but it was completely different than everything else at the show. It had a walkthrough design, it had a rear power takeoff, a power grass collector. It was three models, if I remember rightly. And we literally worked through the night to get this thing done. We have six weeks and it won't be perfect, but we'll, we're, it's even going to be harder after that because we've got about another six weeks before we need to be in production. And I'm basing that on the 12 weeks it would take me to get shipments of proper engines out of America and transmissions, which in those days were manual transmissions that very quickly became hydrostatic transmissions. But the engine suppliers I knew very well. I knew Fred Stratton, uh, Mike Hamilton, who was the, a, an English guy who was their VP. And they came and saw me and, uh, and we did a deal. And it, it was fascinating the amount of support we got, mainly probably because they were also having their orders cut a bit. But we got the job done. And uh, obviously the next big thing was winning over the dealers and then more importantly, getting the marketing and the brand going. What sort of team did you have at the beginning? We'll come on to people in a moment, which is the most important part of the whole process. I'd taken on Jeremy Sace, who was once upon a time with Samuel and Pierce in Richmond, and they used to have the Honda account and then eventually became Westwood's marketing company. So they knew how to sell garden tractors. And Jeremy was a lovely, you know him, dinosaur that could do photography, copyright, and, and knew how to hunt down the AB consumer, which was our target market. We, the name of it was the afterthought. So we then decided we'd just call it Countax K-Series. And it became the K-Series because Jeremy persuaded me it was the strongest letter in the alphabet or something. Uh, we had a K-14 for a 14 horsepower, 16 for a 16 and so on. Um, and that's what we launched. The, the brutal side of it, which I'm sure I wouldn't do today, well, you never know, was I then took all their staff. So we had Jeremy, which was great, but I needed a sales team. The best guy in the business, as far as I was concerned, was the guy who used to sell me garden tractors, and that was Peter Burnham. And Peter was their sales director, and he lived nearer to Oxford than he did to Plymouth. Uh, and he's three sales teams. Once I'd got him, he got the rest of the sales team. I then took their buying department, which was run by the founder's daughter, all of whom obviously now didn't have much loyalty um, because the company had been sold. I took their IT department, who was the husband of <laughs> the buying Cracking start in, in those departments. And, and the, I guess the, the big thing about the branding and the selling capabilities was that Jeremy says our marketing director really did know where, where to spend a pound properly. So you'd see these huge, great pages in a color advertising magazine in the, say, the Sunday Times or the Telegraph. Jeremy would do small black and whites everywhere. So he would get best bang for his buck. And all we were interested in doing in those days was getting inquiries. And once we got the inquiry, we could send them to the dealer and we could send the name and the address of the inquirer to the dealer. Oh, and the name of the dealer to the customer. So that was a drive that I don't think anyone was expecting. What was the dealer reaction at the launch? We were in a recession and the Gulf War was on. Was it a good time to start a business? Yeah, and if you can get it done then, it's easier, not harder, as we come out of all of that. What, what was, I guess we were fairly blinkered in what we wanted to do. We just went for it. And we needed a lot of dealers. We needed a lot of marketing. And we needed to make sure that the product came off the line on time. So our, our first big one 
was Winchester Garden Machinery. They had five branches and Robin and I knew each other very well. So he said, okay, I'll give you an order for 50 machines. And what we were not expecting is the negative response from our competitors about that. He being an independent, all garden machinery dealers, also ordered, I think, 100 Westwards at the same time. And they went to see him and said, we don't want you to be ordering these tractors from Countax. How they, they very quickly found out. And of course, we hadn't made one at that point. Robin being Robin just said to them, look, I'm sorry, but I'll order what I like. I always have done. But anyway, they didn't handle it very well. So he phoned me up one day out of blue. And again, Robin being Robin said, how about I give you all my winter stock order for garden tractors? How do I know I'm going to get them on January the 1st? I said, well, you won't. You'll get them on January the 15th. And you're not going to, you don't need them before then, Robin. But I said, that's our production schedule. And I'll tell you what, you can come to the factory and take the first one off the line and I'll take your picture. And I'm, to this day, I can't remember if it was bang on the day, but it was damn close and he got the first tractors. So what about the numbers initially? I think the, uh, the interesting thing with the dealers were that they weren't expecting the product to work as well as it did or be as reliable as it did. And Peter Burnham was extremely good as a sales director because he'd had all the history of failures of new product and always most manufacturers get teething problems they have to modify things and the rest of it well it went out and it was solid and and that was a breath of fresh air for everybody because it was a big question can he make them will they last will they fall apart and can they make enough of them and we managed to get through tick those book we did five thousand and it was a bit brave but we knew the numbers and we were going after at least 50%, which would have been 4,000 of the UK market mm -hmm. at that time. Their market kept growing for a while, which was good. But at one point, I think it was 12,000. We started claiming market leadership a few years later. And it was always, the product was always called Britain's number one selling garden tractor. And that was probably the peak of our branding and our marketing coming together. And the dealers, of course, then would give us fairly formidable orders. You obviously had to build more capacity. So was the funding available for that? It, the extraordinary thing was that we'd built and opened a factory before this happened. So we were gearing ourselves up uh, to give ourselves some space. And we built this 24,000 square foot factory. And eventually we built another 25 and yeah. joined it all up and it became a hundred and something or other. But 130,000, I think in the end, but whilst having built that first factory, this is an indication of how things have changed. We built it ourselves. So we were the contractor and we just employed a lot of small subcontractors. The battle to get planning was not as difficult as I thought because everybody wanted more employment. So we got that done. And then as we were building it, Westwood sold. So that, that was the, the kind of element of all the direction of travel. One Friday afternoon at four o'clock, having got planning permission, I had a call from reception to say there was a gentleman from NatWest Bank wanted to see me. He introduced himself and he said, I noticed that you've got planning permission to build this factory. Have you got funds? I said, no, I haven't actually. I said, I'm about to look at that. I said, we'll probably build it in the next year or two. He said, we'll let, we'll lend you the money. And it was a ridiculous situation. I think it cost us 700,000. That's really cheap. We did it and, and it was very quickly worth 2.2 million or something. And they just gave us a mortgage and that if you'd have rented it in that 
those days, that would have been about the same price. So it was a great step forward. You later attracted royal patronage when Princess Anne opened your new factory extension. The Princess Anne opening was not the first time we'd met her because we sponsored a jump at Gatcombe Park for Zara. But she was uh, delightful. We had Sterling Moss at the opening of that. And before I knew it, all Princess Anne wanted to talk about was racing. <laughs> and I introduced her to Sterling. Obviously, she met many times. And he was very complimentary of her horse riding the weekend before. She stood in for her daughter, Zara, and she came third. She said, oh, that was just some noise. And then she said, but I want to talk about racing. Um, and before you know it, I said, all of these people here are ex-carters. Even Sterling was a carter. Oh, she said, I love carting. She said, I even like a bit of off-road carting. And she was just so wonderful to be with. But the bit that did it for me was we had a PR lady. Jane Atkinson, and Jane was, she was once Lady Di's only PR lady, for example. And I found her at JCB and she was doing a bit of work for us. And she set this up as she did many things, including the launches at Chelsea Flower Show and things. It, it was a moment I'll never forget because Jane said to me, she said, your plant is going to shut down when she arrives. And I said, how do you mean? She said, you'll be out here at Pindra. She said, you're going to walk around. Everybody will just down tools and not say a word. She said, your factory will just suddenly get quieter and quieter till you can hear a pin drop. And that was exactly what happened. We got to the assembly line where she was going to stand up and, and do the official opening. You could have heard a pin drop. Now on Radio 4, Peter Day has been presenting in business for 25 years. Tonight, he goes back to meet some of the business survivors who's featured in the programme over the years. Yes, it's 25 years since I started doing this programme and I'm not the only one who seems to have survived the ups and downs of a quarter of a century of business life. Let's go right back to a competition in business broadcast in 1991 when Britain was, as it so often seems to have been, mired in recession, high unemployment and social unrest. Harry Handcammer of Countax, congratulations to the in-business survivor of the year the other day, 22 years later, I caught up with the winner and the award itself. It survived quite well, actually, the little man hanging off a cliff. It is a rather striking thing, and you're not ashamed of it, because he could have fallen off, couldn't he, later on? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and that actually, it's been said many times that the trophy, actually, you've got a man hanging by his fingertips. What happens next? I could have fallen off a cliff, actually, just after you gave it me, but fortunately that didn't happen. Harry Handkammer, still cherishing the in-business Survivor of the Year trophy he won 22 years ago. Yeah, it was a bit it was a bit of a shock, really. It was out of the blue. Quite nicely done. Peter Day, obviously extremely well-respected, articulate presenter. And he'd got this in-business was the programme on Radio 4. And Jeremy had decided that Radio 4 was our target market. And also, this was going out just before the start of the season. All the people, if you're on the radio, they will hear you and they will be at the Chelsea Flower Show where we will have a stand. But he worked it all out. And I can't remember the protocol for the entry, but Jeremy got involved in it. And the next thing I know, we were in the finals. I was very surprised. I wasn't expecting to win it. Um, but it was done live and it was done in the basement of the BBC uh, just off Regent Street. Once we got it done, I was not expecting the impact it would have. But Jeremy being Jeremy knew he was a proper art, very clever marketing director. And he knew an angle when he saw one. And we ended up with just absolutely 
loaded with inquiries um, at Chelsea Flower Show and people coming on saying, oh, I heard you on in business. And it was a boost to the business, which was great. And then the plaque I've still got was wonderful. Uh, we put it in the showroom, obviously. I've still got it was designed by the people that designed the start of the money program, which was this fancy cog thing. And I got this case, glass case with a clip back of it, a little man hanging by his fingernails. And then obviously they put a plate on it with my name on, but yeah, that was, that would have been uh, probably only 90. You were always interested in the opportunities provided by parallel marketing. And when, I guess one of the most striking was the tie up with the Williams F1. The, the Williams one's a bit more simple to, to, to discuss. We used to use their conference area and it's, it's a really marvelous setup because they've got the museum there with all the cars and all the old drivers going back to Keki Rosberg and Clay Regazzoni and all of that. It's lovely. You walk through this hall of fame and down the other end is all the cars and it's really nice. And they've got a lovely conference center where you can actually do a nice presentation and a lot of grass outside. So we were dealing with them. I'd known Frank going way back because when I was a retailer, I actually sold him a, a Westwood garden tractor uh, over at his house in Pangbourne. And uh, we were at a conference one day and one of his, one of his guys sidled up to me and he said, Frank wanted to talk to you about garden tractors. And I said, but I, I can get Frank some garden tractors. He said, yes, but he said, one of the provisors is he doesn't want to come to work on a Monday morning and see something red in front of him again. And that was, we actually have a red tractor with a little yellow badge and the Ferrari thing was, you know, they were killing everybody with Schumacher at the time. So I said, oh no, colors, that'll be difficult. I said, that's just, that's a real challenge. I said, we don't, changing paint is the holy grail. You cannot do that because you've got, it just so disruptive. You need all the parts uh, at once. And uh, that's not how we work. We do batches of different parts. I said, just tell him to rethink it. And he came back. He said, no, Frank said it, it must be, but he'll do something with you. You can have the Williams brand if you want, you know, if you can sell it. So I said, okay, we'll think about it. Anyway, I went back and thought about it. I thought, well, if we did a batch of whatever, a hundred or something in one go, it might work. But of course it was much more complicated than that. And of course we got carried away with it. We started to say, let's have a carbon dashboard and aluminum pedals and and push button starter, which we'd not had before. And we did way too much work on it. And I was thinking, ah, oh, typical bloody hand camera. You've got yourself carried away just cause it's a motorsport thing. And next thing I knew, we went to the Chelsea flower show and we charged quite a bit of money for this product. Cause it was very expensive to make. But the next thing I knew we'd gone to the Chelsea flower show. And for some reason I, I'd mentioned it to Sterling and I said to him, do you fancy Coming to the Chelsea Flower Show, so you can come and have a look at our new Williams garden tractor. He's only just down the road at Mayfair. And my brother shot down to Mayfair, picked him up, and we'll never forget how Sterling told him which way to go in every single road to avoid the traffic and kept saying, Go on, put your foot down, boy. When we actually got him there, he sat on it, and no sooner had he sat on it, and he was saying, How'd you start it, boy? Was the cameras were on us? And it went out live was recorded to go out in their program, Chelsea Flower Show program in the evening. And it wasn't a quickie. It was a good four or five minutes of full on Countex have built this Williams garden tractor. And the next thing I knew, every dealer wanted one. And so we sold the lot in one go. Yeah. 
Uh, and that was a real surprise. And it was very straightforward. And we did it for about three years. It became almost collectible, believe it or not, that the odd, the odd nerdy racing guy would have one in his garage and not have much grass to cut. But we got through that and that was fine. How did the attempt on the world land speed record for a lawnmower come about? We were approached by Bewley, who had uh, a good connection with Don Wales, who was Donald Campbell's nephew. And he, but he'd had a few records up his sleeve on various things. And the guys from Bewley approached me and said, look, we can sponsor this. We'll supply the equipment, pick up trucks to run up and down and do various things, but we need somebody to build it. They weren't prepared to pay for that, but they said, you will get all the publicity if you could, if we can break the world record. And I think at that time it stood at about 75 miles an hour or 80 miles an hour. I had fun doing it. It, it wasn't expensive for us, even though you, know, you might say, well, why are you doing that while you're doing all the other stuff? But we started it over a period of months with our developers, my developing guys, they all love motorsport and motocross and all these things. And they wanted to get their teeth into it. So I gave them, I said, if you want to do it, burn the midnight oil and do it as a moonlight, it's all yours. And I'll supply the engine, the fancy front wheels with proper bearings and things that we're going to need to do a hundred miles an hour. We made a mower, a special little mower deck, and you had to put it on, cut the grass before and after. And it had to cut grass properly, which it did. We think we could have done an average of a hundred miles an hour because the, uh, there were two things about it that were fun for me. One is we got to our Williams connection. We, uh, we got Patrick Head involved, who was the, obviously everybody knows the Formula One guru behind yeah. Frank Williams, who did all their design and development. And I'd spoken to Frank about it and he said, ah, talk to Patrick. And I said, look, do you mind if we bring this around? Cause we think if we go too fast, this thing's going to do something strange aero wise and we took it round and he walked in and within five minutes he said yeah that's going to lift off the ground he said the air's going to go over that bonnet so front wheels are going to come up in the air when you get to about 90 and he said that might be a bit tricky <laughs> i said okay i'm glad we talked to you what should we do he said it's going to lift by about 40 50 kilos or 20 25 kilos just put some weight on the front I said, are you serious? He said, yeah, just put some weight on the front. He said, look at the weights now, the corner is just stick another 30 kilos on the front. Anyway, I then went back to, we had a Kawasaki engine on it and I went back to Kawasaki and I said, what's the biggest lawnmower engine you've got? He said, 35 horsepower. I said, can you tell me what it weighs? We then decided if we put that on and moved it forward a touch, that would do the trick and it could give us a little bit more power. Cause I think we only had 25 horsepower on it. Anyway. Off it went. And if Don had put his foot down when he should do and not build up slowly, he would have done the average speed at a hundred easily. So we lost a good 10 miles an hour, we think, and maybe a bit more because he didn't get on it early enough. And I was on the back of the works. You do a run one way and then you refuel and do a run the other. And it's the average of the two, whichever way the wind's blowing, you're going to go faster one way than the other. And I was on their pickup truck at the back with a toolbox and we were doing exactly a hundred towards the end of the run when he came past us, because <laughs> I told the drivers to do exactly a hundred yeah. and, and that would give me a gauge on how quick he was going. So it was doable for our target, about, but he still broke the world record yeah. and, and obviously received all the you know, stuff for a while that these records do. But the odd thing was that, no, not odd, but the nice thing was he said, the guy that owned that record 
from America came over to watch it. He then went back and built another one. I can't remember what happened. Yeah. So Countax held the land speed record for a lawnmower, 87 miles an hour. Just days later, it was announced that Countax had been bought by Arians, Harry sealing the deal with CEO Dan Arians. And what were your feelings at the time? I can remember. And we, we were very successful, but it was never easy, easy. It never is. It always looks, once you've achieved something, it always looks like it, it couldn't have been that difficult. But none of it was easily won. And when we did the deal with Dan, there was no relief. I didn't feel relieved because we were, it was like a weight off your shoulders and now I can sit back. And I didn't feel regret either. Dan and I got on well. We still get on well. He, he's got a different perspective because he has such an enormous company and all he wants to do is keep buying more businesses. And obviously when it's your business, you're a little bit more precious with it and you want things done a certain way that you know will work and other ways won't. Uh, and I could see that I needed to probably not spend too much time getting involved with the, shall we say, the American philosophy of how to manufacture because there will be a different culture than me. And, and that's as is often the case. But I was really quite delighted when it was Dan because we'd had a few people looking at us and Dan had tried to buy before he wanted to, as he called it, a beachhead to Europe. And we certainly gave him that and we certainly gave him a lot of distributors. So he did, he did, he ticked a big box when he bought us. So yeah, no, no real regrets on it. But if I'm honest, I, I think we probably sold a bit late, not too early. I think we could have sold, I think we could have sold a bit earlier. Because I think there was, it would have had more room for scope. The problem is once you keep hang on to it, you run out of steam in terms of product and how much more development you can do and what you're selling. But I don't look back. I've never done. That's not my thing. That interview was recorded 12 months ago and was revealing in many ways. Harry acknowledged the different manufacturing cultures between a company like Arian's and a specialist producer such as Countax. And Harry's final words about running out of entrepreneurial steam recognises that the pace that propelled Countax through that heady 20-year history was unlikely to maintain in the long run. Harry did his thing with remarkable results and created an episode in the annals of lawnmower history that is unlikely to be repeated. I'm Chris Biddle. Thank you for joining me. And this is Inside Agriturf. Mm -hmm.